No brand is ever going to be relevant and, and loved by everyone. And that's okay, right? So the, the, the game is really won and lost by understanding you know, who specifically you want to serve. Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 330. Today is Sunday, the 2nd of June, 2019. And just a quick announcement that my new book, Artificial Empathy, Putting Heart into Business and AI, is now out as an audiobook, available on Amazon or Audible, of course, also still as a Kindle or paperback. For today's show, I have Mitch Duckler. Mitch is managing partner of brand and marketing strategy consultancy called Full Surge, who has also spent many years working brand management in blue chip companies such as Unilever and Coca-Cola. He's the author of a brand new book, The Indispensable Brand, Move from Invisible to Invaluable. In this conversation, we of course focus on branding, how brands can stand out and avoid what Mitch calls brand monotony, the power of purpose and brand personality, and the importance of employees as touchpoints for the brand. Welcome to the Minter Dialogue podcast, where we discuss branding and all things digital. I am Minter Dial, your host, and you'll find the show notes on my eponymous site, MinterDial.com. Enjoy the show. Mitch Duckler, it's great to have you on the show. You are, as I understand, based outside of Chicago. You run a full-surge strategy consultancy, and you just recently published The Indispensable Brand, Move from Invisible to Invaluable. So, Mitch, in your own words, how do you describe yourself? Um, well, I would like to describe myself as as indispensable, hopefully as a, as a, as a consultant. Good luck. Uh, exactly, exactly. Um, no, but I I am a a brand and marketing strategy consultant. So, really, what I what I do on a day in day out basis is I help clients uh, build very strong brands uh, individually and collectively as a portfolio, and that's really the premise behind the book that you just referenced a moment ago. Um, is how do you kind of break through this whatever you want to call sea of sameness, brand monotony, as I refer to it in the book, um, and move from what I would consider to be a state in which brands are becoming invisible, and not, in other words, virtually indistinguishable from one another within a category, to highly invaluable and, and even indispensable brands that your customers cannot live without. And that's really the end goal, I think, of, of, uh, of a brand manager. So, Mitch, what, what on earth made you want to have that tortuous process of writing and publishing a book? Well, it's, uh, there, there are a few things. Uh, one is I, I do believe, uh, just having been in brand my entire career, um, I, I do believe that we are, this is a bit of a crisis, and it has been getting worse. So um, it's just philosophically um, it is something that I believe strongly in, uh, and then pragmatically, being in, in being a brand consultant, right? Being in, in the professional services arena, uh, a, a brand strategist, it's something that's very important for my career, to be honest, and for our firm to be able to demonstrate our thought leadership, to use our platform as a means to demonstrate our thinking, as well as generate new business uh, and clients and so forth. So it's really twofold. Yes, yeah, so in the end of the day. 
in the indispensable brand is also about making the indispensable consultancy exactly making, making you stand out exactly that's why that's why I led with that exactly so, so you're a consultant, but you also have a, a past working in, in industry and in, in the real life. So tell us about what your past was that led you before you doing launching Full Surge. Sure. Um, I like to tell clients very often that um, I have the benefit of two worlds. I, I've sat in their shoes, right? I've been a brand manager, a director of marketing. Um, I've owned P&Ls. And I think that's very important for them to know that. Uh, there's nothing wrong with being a lifelong consultant. Uh, there are very many, and, and many do it very well. But I do think I have a unique perspective, having spent about 10 years or so working um, as a brand manager or in brand management with world-class companies like Unilever and like Coca-Cola. Um, and and I, I just think it gives me a, a very unique perspective uh, to understand you know, what it's like to live in their shoes and, 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 uh, and like I said, own P&Ls and write through your strategic plans, not necessarily just flip from one, one engagement to the next. That's so true. And I, I subscribe to the same idea, Mitch, because you, like I, also worked in industry. And on top of that, we yes. worked also in the same type of industry. So yeah, we did. What, I, what I loved about your book and one of the things, that I, the, the notions that I really just, you know, fully, you know, like, ah, right, brand monotony so brand monotony and this notion that they just don't stand out they're much of the yeah. muchness how how did we get so much monotony in the first place so how how has this come around yeah so in the book i write about and i won't go into too much detail there's an entire chapter on it in there but i write about seven factors that have led to the current state of of, of uh brand monotony one is changes in technology um, that, that's obvious like we're digital uh, digital activation the internet the world wide web social media um have really kind of changed the playing field if you will in, in brand and marketing proliferation of choice there are more there's more choice uh than ever before in any given category and more categories and in industries for that matter than ever before there have been changes to distribution, especially changes in power from manufacturer to retailer to consumer. Communications and messaging have changed radically. When I started out in brand management, um, there well, when brand management launched, there were three three uh, national uh, network broadcast networks in the United States: you know, ABC, NBC, and CBS. And and now we've got cable television and satellite and DVR. The amount of information that's available. Net, net, what that means is there has been a transfer of power uh, in the commercial equation from manufacturers to consumers. I'm not saying it was easy to be a brand manager back in the 60s and 70s and 80s, but I think it was a lot less challenging. There was a lot more control. You, you made your 30-second ad and you ran it on one of three network television stations and your brand was positioned. Not so anymore. And I think because of that, it, because of that there has been... Um, a, a bit of a backlash, and I think marketers have shifted to more of a of a mindset of copy, right, and 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 imitate as opposed to really differentiate and innovate. Huh. So, in in the end of the day, what it makes me think is that maybe there wasn't so much differentiation in the past because it wasn't as visible, because there wasn't so many opportunities, the distribution wasn't there, and you know my my detergent does white mine does really white and that was sufficient in the past whereas now there's sort of a level of, of transparency on the ingredients on the messaging 
because in the, you could also say with so many channels of distribution for communicating, the message gets completely diffused, and, mm-hmm. and it's harder to pick up on what is each brand. Yes, yes, and, and actually, access to information is another right. So. Uh, way back in the day, market research was in the, the domain of the privileged, right? It was very, very expensive, and and um, um, few companies could do it to really understand uh, consumers and what their needs are and how to position their brand. Now, uh, anyone can do it, right? It's there are so many ways that um, startups can understand consumer needs and understand perceptions and attitudes and have access to the type of insights that were once privileged to the IBMs and Procter and Gamble's of the world. So, with all of that, you know, everybody's got the same amount of information and access to it, and um, it's it's kind of a leveling of the playing field, or as as Friedman said, the world is flat. And I think that's part of what is resulting in, in the monotony that we're seeing. All right. So we in this flat world where nothing stands out, then how do you construct a brand that is going to stand out? What are the what are the key pillars for making that happen? Well, it all starts with positioning, as as you know, um, and, and identifying the essence of your brand. Uh, what is it that makes it different? Uh, what is it that makes it better and special? And one of the things that I talk about in the book is is that we as marketers need to think about positioning um, more expansively. So in the old days of, of uh, back in like the recent trout days of positioning, right, where the brand positioning state was invented, the, the positioning was always based on a benefit, a consumer and benefit, right? And it, it was typically what I would call a what, right? It's what it does, what your brand, what your product does for its target audience. And that's valid, right? There's there's nothing to say that you can't or shouldn't do that. But I would argue that in many categories, including the one in which we're very familiar with, the what is almost generic or universal, right? So if you think about hair care, which we're both familiar with, at the end of the day, it's all about beautiful hair, right? And uh, you're not going to differentiate or, or become uh, differentiated based on talking about beautiful hair. But what have competitors done within the category? They talk about how they do it, right? It's vitamin infused or it's conditioner that self-adjusts or something like that. Your point of difference is about a how. So all of a sudden you start thinking about differentiation differently. It doesn't have to be a benefit. It can be a how or a process. And two other ways are why or, or a who, Right? Why is typically purpose branding? Right? A lot of brand that's that's all the rage now. The last five to ten years. Mr. Sinek. Simon Sinek, exactly. Uh, start with the why. Um, and, and that's about a brand that's is the the very essence of it, its very reason for being is all about a purpose. Uh, so that's another opportunity to be differentiated. And and then the final one is who. Right? There are certain brands, especially lifestyle brands, that really define themselves based on the target that they serve. You know, Mountain Dew is a brand for extreme um, outdoor enthusiasts, young male gamer, very often they're gamers. Uh, when you think about the Mountain Dew soft drink brand, uh, a certain image comes into your mind of the user, and they've really defined their brand around their consumer, their advocates. All right, so let's go, Mitch, with a legacy yep. brand, uh, a la yep. Finesse, a la L'Oreal, Paris. When you're dealing with these these huge brands that have millions of customers that have have a history in a P and L language of money that's come in the till, now 
Mitch goes out to them and says, you know what, you need to differentiate more. Your products are all the same. They've got a great silicon formula, la-di-da, wonderful. But you need to stand out in this fat world. How do you get a, a legacy brand like that, that has so many stakeholders, so much history to move and have some sort of Himalaya stand out in this flat world? Yeah. Well, it, it's not easy. I think the, the first thing you need to do is understand that there's a certain amount of pragmatism involved here. And, and you know, when you talk about brands, uh, like the types of brands that are owned by a L'Oreal, you're talking about you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, right? And um, I don't want to be billions of dollars exactly yeah and um collectively and and you can't be a you can't be a purist and say you know what you're not differentiated um and therefore you need to upset the apple cart so i I think very often it does start with building a business case right i think and a lot of it is through and, and we've done this with clients in the past market research to understand your consumers uh, to segment your market, to understand which targets, or which segments you need to target, because they are the ones that are most profitable for you to serve, and then understand what their needs are, what what their drivers of purchase and loyalty are, and the extent to which your brand aligns with those. Um, and if you can make the case that repositioning your brand and everything, every aspect of it, not just the position in the communication, but the product and service offering, the experience it offers. Um, can, will actually drive greater levels of loyalty than you have a business case. If not, then it's just an academic exercise. Do you not get pushback with the clients you deal with? Well, you know, if I say this, it's going to piss off this group. Yes. And my answer to that is good. <laughs> Again, it goes back to, well, two things. It goes back to what the point I brought up earlier about segmentation, right? So, no brand, I don't care what brand you are, even massive ubiquitous brands like Google and Starbucks, right? No brand is ever going to be relevant and, and loved by everyone. And, and that's okay, right? So the, the, the game is really won and lost by understanding you know, who specifically you want to serve, right? And everybody else is all nice to have, right? Get your fair share. You've got to win um, exponentially with your target segment and get your fair share of everyone else. So yes, as you reposition your brand, you might alienate certain people and that's okay as long as you know it is who you're serving and you win disproportionately with them. The world's best-known investor and Wall Street expert Warren Buffett once said, Wall Street is the only place that people ride to in a Rolls Royce to get advice from those who take the subway. Mr. Buffett's quote is remarkably accurate, but how many people would rather receive advice from him than someone simply guessing? Welcome to Buy, Hold, Sell, your single source for Wall Street knowledge and profitable guidance. Please join me, Todd Schoenberger, and fellow trader Tobin Smith, as well as host Veronica Dudo, for a podcast known to move the needle for investors. Tobin and I are seasoned Wall Street executives with deep investment experience, and we are prepared to share our advice to those who choose to listen. Download Buy, Hold, Sell today on the Evergreen Podcast Network or your favorite podcast channel. In, in listening to you, Mitch, and I love the idea, you know, sparking new ideas, I almost have this idea of, you know, D'Artagnan, he gets his, epi- his, gets his sword and he has it to your neck and he says, but who would you like to piss off? <laughs> Don't you find, in order for us to move the dial, we actually need to get that conversation going? Because... Otherwise, it's too quickly. Well, you know, well, yeah, I really want to keep them as well. Uh huh. Uh huh. 
Yeah, and and I think the, I've had that that conversation with clients frequently, and I think the way you talk about it is is is, a, is in a couple of different ways. One is, and there's been a lot of research. I can't really um, I can't reference the exact studies, but there's been a lot of market research that has showed that brands that are are polarizing, right? They really are loved, beloved by some and, and hated by others. You know, are far outshine those that are just blase to everyone um so and which i think which is, which, uh, is which you're talking about that's the banal yeah that's the monotonous Monotony. world the blase exactly you, you are better off you know uh, taking 20 percent of the market and building champions and, and loyalists out of those and pissing off the other 80 percent than just being mediocre to everyone exactly um so how do you do that in a, in a business where i still also Account, account to the shareholder at the end of every quarter. Uh, you know, don't worry, everything is on track, and blah blah blah. And yet, with moving the Titanic ship, which has got all these customers, and and you know, it, we might have little underrepresentation in certain customer groups. Yes, we want to have a somewhat smaller overrepresentation as other customer group, typically younger. Yep. And and to go the apple cart route which is what you do when you're pissing off people, especially when you've got the legal team breathing down your back. You can't see that. <laughs> right, right. I, you know, I don't know if it's ever good to piss off people, right? <laughs> what, what, I'm t- what I'm talking about is you build your brand around your zealots, right? Your, the, the folks that you know are the most important to win with. And you don't fire everyone else, and you certainly don't deliberately try to piss them off, but you don't build your brand around them either. And what you'll find is you might get your fair share of them, or maybe not even, and, and that's okay, right? So it's not to say that um, you build. So for I think a great example is in the airline industries. You know, in the industry, what airlines have done is they've built their brands around their most loyal customers, right? They serve their frequent flyers, the ones that are most loyal and have the most status on their airlines, and they build every aspect of their offer, their experience to tailor and cater to them. That doesn't mean that all everybody else, all those people that board when they call group six or seven, you know, and they're the last eight people to get on, the, you're still going to get them, right? Do you yeah, think it's not like you're not going to, but you're not going to build your brand around them and design your offer in the essence of your positioning to serve them? Right, great. I love this because, you know, obviously I travel a lot and probably you do too. Yes. The, the, the group one of American, yes. the group yep. one of United, and the group one of British Airways, how different are they really? Yeah, uh, they're they're not. To be honest, they're not as different. And in fact, it is an example that um, they're all actually trying to cater to the same, right? The, the the frequent business, you know, non-cost sensitive flyer who wants to be pampered and spoiled, and who wants who wants to be the million mile flyer, et cetera. Um, but I think I think you're absolutely right. Uh, I, I think uh, you know. I use the analogy uh, when you're sitting on a plane. And I do, I do this all the time. I know you do too. And I fly United, right? That's uh, Chicago, right? Big surprise. You don't, you don't have guitars. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, being in United, uh, Chicago, we're Chicago based, so that's my O-R-D. airline. But I sit, I ORD. I sit on a plane and I look, and I, I couldn't tell you what airline I'm on, right? I take a look at the seats around me. I take a look at the overhead bins. I take a look at the cockpit, the flight attendants, the beverage cart. Everything. I think, with maybe the exception of a Virgin 
uh, or a few other airlines, you wouldn't know what what airline you're flying that day. And, and I think that is unfortunately a great example of monotony. Yeah, totally. And you know, you know, and when we get into cosmetics, is that well, we want to have younger and 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 you know, like the fashion conscious, fashion forward, and you know, yeah. in, in the cosmetics world, that's the typical thing and then when you go into outdoors Patagonia I want you know the wild adventurer and they all have the sort of same group and yet some of them manage to stand out a la Virgin because I think in that case they have some kind of of aura that Branson has stamped Branson. on it and and that element is is differentiable and and makes you feel when you fly Virgin you're a little bit Branson like Yes. Yes, I think that they're a great example of that. I think on the other end, in, here in the U.S., Southwest Airlines um, is, with Keller is, is very much the same. Um, those are the exceptions, right? A few that have, whether it's around the eccentricity of Branson um, or the not taking yourself too seriously of a Southwest, um, they have found, those airlines have found a way to have a, a different point. And they reflected everything. Like I love on Virgin their their safety video, which is like watching a, a, a comedy show, right? And but that and they do that not because not just because it's entertaining, but because it reflects their brand and yeah. their persona. Gary Vaynerchuk yeah. did a video uh, yeah. on LinkedIn where he said, "Too many brands are still interested in commercials. Yeah, you should think about the content between the commercials." Right and and so while in and so the ad here you're you're talking about the safety advertisements you know where you have to wear your seatbelt and all that it is let's say a standard you have to do it but they make it feel like content versus yes. commerce. Yes, and it's interesting because I think um, United has actually tried to imitate to a certain extent what Virgin has done, and it just falls flat. It is it's almost painful to watch because you can see what they're doing. And there's monotony in a different way, copycat, right? Yeah, right. So, uh, and they just can't do it. Right. They can't so, pull it off. It's not their brand. On the one hand, you know, if you're dealing with an entrepreneur, Mitch, where you've got, you know, you you're fabricating it, you're, or fab, you know, you're making it yourself. Mitch is running it. I'm me, and I'm going to bring, you know, full me to the plate. But when you're a legacy brand, this notion of breaking the monotony, especially when you have a portfolio of brands underneath you becomes awfully difficult and so while it might be in the nuance and you need to be pragmatic that somehow I feel you need to break the glass and you need to have that sort of cut that sort of element of, of distinct personality which originally came from the founder then you buy the company the founder gets ejected three years later and then you're left with some mercenary person running it that used to be on another brand it's going to apply what they did to do there successfully on the new one and next thing you know You've got a monotonous brand. Yes. Yeah. yeah. No, I, it, it's it's not it's not easy. There's no doubt about it, and and, and that that's why I have job a uh, job. Right? Exactly. So that's why, that's why you and I have a job. <laughs> so right, we both so have jobs. Exactly. Let's talk about purpose because um, yeah. you you mentioned it a lot in your book. Mm -hmm. How do you define purpose? Well, the, the context within which I talk about purpose in the book is one of those four ways, right, to um, the why, in this case, uh, for, de for defining a point of difference. So um, 
every, I wouldn't say every brand, but certainly every company and certainly all major companies have a purpose, right? I think, you know, they all have a mission statement and sometimes it's in their annual report or hanging in the headquarter walls, right? And, and that's fine. That's all well and fine, but that's not really what I'm talking about. It's, it's one thing for a company to have a mission, especially a corporate brand to have a mission or a purpose. It's another to define your brand by it. And that's really what I talk about in the book. And we talk about, and actually you mentioned Patagonia earlier. That's a brand that I actually mentioned uh, in the book that and uh, Tom Shoes, Patagonia, uh, Warby Parker are examples of brands who don't just have a mission like a lot of companies, but they, it defines them. It's their very essence. And consumers or customers gravitate to them because of that purpose, almost despite their product and services. Those are second to the secondary to these people. So if it's one of the ways of differentiating yourself, that I, I take it to mean that it's not necessarily the only way and, nece- and not the one that should be applied to all companies. How do, you, how do you decide whether purpose is something you should be doing? If you look at your options, I read this book, which mm-hmm. ones should I be jumping on? And Because you know, I, I tend to be purpose-led in, mm-hmm. as, as an individual. And I, I want to. I, I feel like I need to sell it, but pull back my sales. Tell me who shouldn't be doing it. Um, I think there's a couple of rules of thumb you can apply. I think one is um, you can't fake it, right? I, I think um, disingenuous purpose will will fall flat. It'll. It maybe it'll be successful if you're lucky for a short period of time. Eventually, I think uh, the market sees through that. So. Uh, before you lead with purpose, I think you have to make sure that it's a true one. It's a powerful one. It really is the reason for being for your company or for your brand. Um, if not, if it's just if it's just cliche, if it's just you know what, that's the thing people do now. They define a purpose and that's their brand. I, I don't think it's going to succeed. But if it really is that powerful, I think that's a starter. And then the other is, I think. The other thing you need to do is, again, look at the other side of the equation and understand, well, it's all well and good to have a purpose, and I encourage it, but to what extent does it resonate in the market? Will you be able to find loyalists that can relate to that purpose, purchase your brand because of that purpose, remain loyal to you because of that purpose, right? Otherwise, you're as as well-intentioned as you are, it's not going to be a good, good business sub. Uh, move for you in the long run so it's it's really really a combination of both do you have that idea that that uh that purpose a purpose that um, is true to you and really genuine and is it compelling in the market so does that mean that you could retrofit a purpose or does it mean that you actually had to have one in the first place uh, I, I think you can retrofit, right? I, so very often purpose brands um, are not always, but very often they are because uh, they come from the founder and they were really the basis for the founding of that company, right? And in that case, um, in that case, I think it's just, it's logical and it's easy, it's comfortable, it's it's natural, right? But I th- that's not to say that, and I'm, I'd have to think about examples. Uh, none really come to mind. But that's not to say that you know purposes um, can't shift over time, or or all of a sudden kind of be created. Maybe there's changes in the market or changes internally within a company's organization that cause a certain purpose to rise in importance and and define a brand. Often, um, oftentimes, I feel that purpose comes with life changing moments. Yeah, and perhaps you can have that kind of a. 
a, let's yeah. say, a life perspective-changing moment within the organization. A new leader, let's call, let's say the CEO, comes in and then says, "Well, you know what? Times have changed. This is what's important." And then, of course, it comes down to the integrity and the authenticity of the way that that leader leads it right. through. Last thing I wanted to talk about, Mitch, was about uh, in in uh, the indispensable brand. Your new book, you talk about employees are far and away the most important touch point for the brand. Yeah. A point with which I agree wholeheartedly. In that case, uh, you know, is is it not the biggest challenge is to find the right employees? So I mean, you want to make the great brand, <clears throat> but then how do you find the adequate employees? to make that brand come alive. Yeah. Well, in, in the um, extreme case, uh, you know, for especially for companies that are very brand-led and, and brand-centric, uh, it actually becomes a part of how they recruit uh, and, and, you know, um, you know, acquire and retain employees. So um, especially for a corporate brand and especially in B2B, um, you know, here is our brand and here, you know, brands have values and brands have precepts. To what extent do you, do you believe in these? Do you embrace them? Do you demonstrate them, uh, through your behavior and through your actions and, and accomplishments and so forth? So it actually becomes ingrained into their culture, right? Uh, the, the, the key aspects of the brand or the key values that that brand possesses, um, that's the ideal, but at a minimum, you know, if, if for companies that can't go that far, at, at a minimum, it's important to kind of, to train, right, and make sure that employees understand the brand, understand what the brand promise is, and not just in words, but in terms of actions. And what does this mean? What does this brand uh, positioning mean in terms of how you conduct yourself on social media or the content that you post? or the way you interact with customers or the way you answer the phone in customer service, make sure that they understand it and ideally embrace it and live it. Beautiful. So Mitch, tell us how we can track you down, follow you, buy <laughs> your book, The Indispensable Brand. So the book is available, uh, I would say in two ways. One is it's in most online retailers' uh, websites. So Amazon, um, Barnes & Noble, um, I, I can't speak globally as to what all the retailers are. Um, I don't know all offhand, but most of the major online retailers um, around uh, the world do are, are offering it right now, so you can purchase it there. Um, it, and you can also visit my company's website. So you mentioned my company earlier, Full Surge. So at Full Surge, F-U-L-L-S-U-R-G-E.com, there's a lot of information on about the book on the, our website, as well as the ability to download two chapters for free if you'd like to read a little bit of a sample before you purchase. You can do that as well. Nice. Well, it's a good long book, uh, and so getting two chapters will not be everything, but it'll give you a good nope. taste. I'll put the links in the show notes. And Mitch, please, pleasure to have you on the show. Um, got great, great to have uh, a Chicago uh, native uh, uh, here, and I uh, look forward to staying in touch. I would like that very much. Thank you, Mentor. It was a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minter Dialogue Show. You'll find the show notes and other blog posts on MinterDial.com. If you enjoyed the show, please head over to iTunes to give a rating and review. And to finish, here's a song I wrote with Stephanie Singer, A Convinced Man.
how much do you understand the future of finance? I'm Jim Roos, a top 10 banking influencer and host of the podcast Banking Transform, where we dive deeply into the rapidly evolving world of banking and financial technology. Join me as I interview industry experts, thought leaders, and innovators as they unravel the latest banking trends, disruptions, and game-changing technologies reshaping the world of finance. Redefine your understanding of the banking ecosystem. Subscribe now to Banking Transformed, available wherever you get your podcasts and now available on YouTube.